0: Welcome to the BD8.com podcast with Veronica Kramer.
1: Well, hi there, and welcome back to another great episode of the podcast. So today I'm excited because we are going to talk all about understanding human dignity to resolve conflict in organizations with Camilo Ascarate. And by way of background... Camilo is an international dispute resolution expert with over 25 years of experience as ombuds, mediator, facilitator, and trainer working for public, private, and international organizations. He is the current ombuds at the European Southern Observatory. Previously, he managed the Office of Employment Mediation Services for the World Bank Group and was lead ombuds at Princeton University. Camilo teaches graduate-level courses at Columbia University since 2005 and was a fellow at Harvard University's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. He holds a Juris Doctor, a Master's in Corporate Law, and a Master's in Dispute Resolution, the latter from the University of Massachusetts, as well as a Certificate in Equal Employment from the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. So with that, Camilo, welcome to the Mediate.com podcast, and thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you, Veronica, for the invitation, and thank you to Mediate.com for this invitation. Talking about uh, human dignity is one of my preferred uh, subjects, and also professionally, I'm involved in this subject, so it will be a pleasure to share with you and everyone who is listening uh, some of the insights that we've learned throughout these year's
1: well, fantastic, and yeah, likewise. I'm so excited that you're here to talk about this really important topic. And you know, to get things started, I mean, I I thought I would first share. You know, when we first talked in preparation for this podcast episode, I was familiar with the concept of psychological safety. That's that's a phrase that you hear a lot in terms of the workplace, and I had. I had heard, you know, I, I'm, I've am i heard in general about human dignity, right? Uh, but I'd never heard about it the way that, that you work with this concept of human dignity. And so I thought maybe a helpful way to get started would be, can you just tell me maybe a basic explanation of this concept of human dignity as it relates to, you know, conflict and resolving conflict in the organization?
0: Sure, I would be happy to. So the concept of psychological safety is one element of human dignity. So we could think of it as one part of what we are going to talk about, and probably the main part when we are talking about dignity in the workplace. So the definition that I take from uh, Donna Hicks, who is the person who I follow really closely for more than 25 years, and we are very close friends, the definition of this concept of human dignity is the inherent sense of self-worth and vulnerability that every single human being has as a result of our biological evolutionary process. In other words, human dignity is who we are, and we developed into dignified beings as human beings as part of our survival process. So for all humans, being treated with dignity is not something nice to have, it's a necessity, it's a matter of survival. So this is the reason why we all want to be treated with dignity. The reason why we all suffer when we are uh treated with indignities and uh one why we all flourish when we are treated with dignity. So uh dignity is at the core uh we would say of what uh, uh a human being is.
1: Oh yeah, and you know I was just I was just jotting down notes as you were sharing all that and I mean that's that's compelling that it's it's not just a nice to have, it's a matter of survival and that that's powerful and I could see I mean another thing I wanted to pull out from there, you mentioned these concepts of of self-worth and vulnerability and that that seems like that's like a delicate balance between the two that if you have too much vulnerability, that's where it seems like conflict can arise, right? But if you if there's enough self-worth, then there's the presence of human dignity. Am I, am I following?
0: Yes. So when you have something really precious, something that is extremely valuable to you, your main one of your main concerns is losing that. So the sense of vulnerability is almost a logical and necessary consequences of feeling uh, this sense of self-worth. So we are uh, born with this sense of self-worth, but we are not born with the instruction manual on how we are going to respect the dignity our dignity and the dignity of others. This is something that we have to learn in our life. So the elements, the specific elements of this sense of self-worth, of course, include the sense of safety or security. You know, it is a matter of survival to feel safe. And in the workplace, we are talking about psychological safety. It's the sense that not that nothing bad bad is happening to you for no reason at all, for, for arbitrary reasons. We all want to feel safe in that respect, but it's also the sense of inclusion, the sense of acknowledgement, the sense of fairness, independence, and a- accountability. So all these are part of the same concept of human dignity, but safety, and of course, in particular, psychological safety is a core element in the workplace. And according to Donna, Uh, Whenever she goes into an organization and she talks about dignity and she starts reviewing these elements and she asks which of these elements is more uh, violated in the workplace, Uh, 90% of people raise their hands when she she talks about safety and in particular psychological safety.
1: So can you tell me, I'm curious to know, what was the spark that led you down this path to learn more about human dignity? So I'll share by way of example, Um, you know, over the years when I mediated, I mean, there was a time where I really got into reading different books about the psychology of decision making and organizational change. And the spark for that for me was, so if I thought back to my basic training, uh, basic mediation training, you know, you learn that when someone declines a settlement offer and parties reach impasse, you learn to ask about BATNA and WATNA, like what's your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, your worst alternative to a negotiated agreement. And I used to mediate with a lot of unrepresented parties. And I noticed over and over again, that when I would ask about the worst possible alternative to a negotiated agreement, no one could ever envision themselves losing. Like Everyone thought they had that slam dunk case that there was no possibility of ever losing in the future. And so I remember after encountering that a number of times, I kept thinking to myself, how is it that every single person that I mediate with... Or not every single person, but how is it that so many believe they have a slam dunk case and there's no chance that they could ever lose? And then that's when I started down this path of reading about different cognitive biases, like you know the optimism bias and the superiority illusion, and that and that was the spark for me on that. So I'm curious with your, um, you know, your knowledge and how you've applied these teachings on human dignity. What was the spark for you?
0: So I was lucky, I, w- I guess, in my career, uh, Veronica. In, in my case, when I was finishing my master's in dispute solution, uh, I was introduced during the master's to the work of John Burton and Herbert Kelman who were dispute resolution, who had, let's say, an approach to dispute resolution that was based on basic human needs, the basic human needs framework. And Herb Kelman was the founder of the Program on International Conflict Analysis and Resolution, and one of the people who had the most uh, role in the Oslo agreements in the 90s. Uh, so this is a, a, an, an application to international conflicts of this framework. And I, um, I was lucky that Donna Hicks was the evaluator of my thesis, which was about the conflict in Colombia, the armed conflict in Colombia. And she evaluated me and then she invited me to be one of the members of uh, the Program on International Conflict Analysis and Resolution at Harvard at Weatherhead Center. So I participated in several of uh, her projects, particularly the ones that we conducted in Colombia. So that was my introduction, always thinking on these terms. Later on, when I became an Ombudsman, I continued using Uh, these concepts during my trainings. So for instance, I will introduce the parties to basic human needs, security, fairness, and so on. And then I will introduce things like active listening and how you use active listening to take those elements out of the narrative of people and so on. Later on, uh, in the uh, mid-2000s, when I was at Princeton University, uh, I invited Donna to make a presentation to the international school about her work. She had recently completed uh, some work with Desmond Tutu in Northern Ireland, uh, which was, by the way, part of a BBC documentary in 2006. So we're talking probably 2006 or 7. I, I invited her, and she was very kind. She came to Princeton, and she uh, made this presentation. And when we were talking later on, she mentioned that she was doing a research on human dignity and how this concept uh, was underneath many of the things that she was seeing at the negotiation tables uh, uh, internationally. And she this was the research that led to her book in 2011, which was a bestseller. She didn't expect this to be a bestseller, but it hit a note that I think uh, uh, it's what we are doing right now. It's, a, it's a, It started, let's say, in many ways, a movement. A dignitarian movement, if you will, that uh, that we are experiencing now. I also had the opportunity to talk with Robert Fuller, who was uh, uh, writing at that moment a book called "Somebodies and Nobodies" about the abuse of rank and power in organizations. And I, we had a very pleasant conversation, and um, I found the connection between his work, of course, and the work of, uh, of Donna. And they actually know each other later on. So I have been part of this movement, I guess, from the very beginning, but also in the role of a practitioner, always in the role of a practitioner, never developing or writing my own books or anything like this. In the last 10 years, I have met people, fantastic people like Evelyn Linder, uh, who uh, has founded something called Humiliation Studies, and humiliation is one of those emotions that come forward when we have our dignity violated. So these are one of the emotional mechanisms that evolution has created, has put in place to for actually act on uh, on the on on the violations of dignity that we have. Another person was Michael Person from Fordham University, who is a key player in something that is known as humanistic management, and. As a whole, you know, the work of Donna, the work of Evelyn, the work of Robert and Michael, we call this the dignitarian movement. In 2017, I made a presentation for the International Ombuds Association, which was a plenary presentation about this subject. And I introduced this because I do believe that the work of the ombudsman organization is to be an agent of dignity in the protection and the promotion of the dignity of the members of that organization.
1: That's that's interesting, and I, I like that phrase, agent of dignity. That's very powerful.
0: Yeah, so, I think that we have the we ha, we are in the best position, actually, to do that, and our uh, standards of practice and everything allow us to 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 do this kind of job. The work that we do is connected directly with human dignity, and we should use it as a north star, if you will.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, earlier on in our conversation, you talked about the elements of dignity like, like fairness, accountability. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, what does indignity look like in an organization? I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. So like, let's say for example, you know, a manager takes credit for work completed by, someone that they supervise without giving that person credit like is that an example of what indignity would look like in the workplace
0: for sure yeah so this is this would be someone acting unfairly and and negating you know the acknowledgement that the someone's work is not his and and taking uh credit for something they don't deserve of course it would be a violation of dignity we are all familiar with these behaviors at the individual level. I think that uh, all of us eh, as mediators and ombuds, we have been part of, we have studied what bullying and mobbing and uh, all these indignified behaviors, inappropriate behaviors, including harassment, uh, exclusion, microaggressions, all these things are part of the same, let's say individual um, list of things that people do, uh, which are, Uh, We create indignities in the workplace. However, nowadays, I am going a little bit beyond that. uh, And I'm thinking also of the indignities that are created at uh, the organizational level. In particular, the indignities created by the culture of organizations. And here's when I take a little bit of of Bob uh, Fuller's job on Rankism and a little bit of uh, Donna's work. And I talk about something that I call organizational rankism. And organizational rankism is part of the culture of an organization in which uh, the people with high power and rank, you know, their rights, interests, narratives, and credibility receive a higher degree of privilege and priority, which means that they are given the benefit of the, of the doubt way more than any other person. So their rights, their interests, their narratives, their credibility in case of someone complaining about these behaviors is much higher in a way that is not justified. So when the culture of of the organization does this, what you have is a double impact in the dignity of people. On the one hand, this abuse reduces psychological safety. On the other hand, the lack of accountability that, cre- that is created by organizational rankism is a second whammy, is a second uh, uh, impact on the dignity of human beings. So this double indignity, as I would call it, creates a, a, a reaction. A ma- it's a massive source of suffering in the workplace. It creates resentment, it creates frustration, it creates cynicism in the workplace because, because people tell to themselves, You know, not only we are subjected to this behavior, but when we speak out, we don't find anyone actually holding people accountable. And this, of course, leads to staying silent when they are subjected to these inappropriate behaviors and these indignities. So a a feedback loop is created between the silence, the indignities, and the lack of accountability, which is reinforced. And that is sometimes described as the deaf ear syndrome. In organizations, as I said earlier, uh, the ombuds function is in a the standards of practice that we have uh, is in a privileged position to actually break that cycle, break that feedback loop, and increase the likelihood that this cultural uh, lack of accountability uh, is broken and actually accountability increases as a whole within the organization.
1: Yeah and as you were sharing that I was I, I was thinking back to um the unique roles of of ombuds and mediators and so just as a refresher um there were a few episodes back, I had an interview with uh, Ombuds Chuck Doran, and he shared with me the, the distinction between ombuds and mediators, and, and I've never worked as an ombuds. My understanding is that ombuds have that unique role to like surface problems and help work towards systemic change within an organization. When I think about mediators, oftentimes, and I think back on my own experience, As a mediator, I was working on helping to resolve like some discrete case or discrete dispute. So I'm curious, can you share with me why do you think it's important for mediators um, to understand human dignity?
0: Yes. So uh, this additional role that Ombuds has. which is in addition to what mediators do. You're right about this being uh, part of the standards of practice of ombuds and not necessarily of the mediators. Although I can confirm with you, because I was for 10 years the manager of mediation services at the World Bank, that during my annual reports, I also included feedback that was related to to the things that we were seeing as mediators. So if you're working within a program that provides reports, periodic reports to the organi- within an organization, you have that opportunity to actually identify these trends and do something about it. However, I think that regardless of our role as mediators or as ombuds, uh, uh, human dignity is at the core of what we do. You know, and, it, and and I think it, it informs all of the standards of practice of our profession, all of the ethical obligations of our profession. Something that is sometimes so deep, buried so deep inside that we fail to recognize it, but it's, it's actually the source of many of these uh, standards and, and ethical obligations. So, in a in a in a blog post that I put a while ago in uh, at the International Ombudsman Association, I say that human dignity is the north star, and I think this is this is true for ombuds, and this is also true for mediators. I think that mediators, as mediators, we're also uh, serving human dignity by helping people uh, address their conflicts in the most effective way.
1: And I just had this thought come to mind as you were sharing that, and I'm curious to get, to get your perspective. So if I think back on the core values of mediation, one of those core values is party self-determination. So it seems to me that human dignity would really be a prerequisite in order for a party to actually be able to exercise that self-determination. Is that Do you think is that fair to say?
0: That's right. So uh, the, the the standards talk about informed self determination. You know, so as a, as a mediator, you should work towards parties making that uh, self determination, but doing it informed, knowing about their options, having information that maybe they didn't have at hand. So it's part of the ethical uh, obligations of mediators to actually make sure that people are making a uh, voluntary uh, self-determination, but that the self-determination is informed. It has, the person has uh, availability of the different elements. If it's information about the legal status, that they have that information. Uh, and in fact, if they need it, uh, I believe that during caucus as mediator, and I have done it many times, we should ask people to, do, to get that information that they don't have. And if there are um, uh, problems with power imbalance as well.
1: And I love that you mentioned power imbalances because you read by mine. <laughs> that's just where I was going to go. So I'm thinking about, you know, two things that a mediator is trying to achieve or do in a mediation. And I'm thinking about like one of the skills of, of active listening. So that's a, a a very popular mediator skill. And then also avoiding power imbalances. Um, so those two things, I mean, our, our, our active listening and handling power imbalances, are those two of the keys to helping minimize indignity or support human, di- support human dignity and minimize indignity in mediation?
0: That's right. And, and the reason why they work is, that, is because they work with the grain of human dignity, which is the, the same grain of human nature. So uh, for decades during the trainings that I did on conflict competencies, I taught active listening as a communication tool that work with the flow of human nature in the same way that a carpenter works with and not against the grain of the wood. In the same way, active listening and paraphrasing and the ground rules of mediations are designed to send a message to the parties that they are safe, that they are going to be treated with fairness that they're going to be included, that they're going to be acknowledged. And these are all the elements of uh, human dignity. So what we do is we create a space that is inspired by human dignity, who has all these protections. And the reason why we are able to resolve conflicts at such a high rate is because we're working with the grain of human nature, which is the same grain of human dignity. And the power imbalances, of course, the power imbalances are a reality outside of the table and also inside of the table, but what doesn't need to happen is the abuse of this power with the complicity of the mediator. The mediator has an obligation to try to minimize this impact and this abuse as much as they can. As in one of the ways is to make sure that parties are making an informed decision, are taking are, are taking the self determination with their necessary information. You know that they're not being tricked into this, and and uh, or or that they don't have enough. Uh, you know um, material information to actually make an informed decision. I believe that. Treating them with dignity means that we should respect the decision, but we should make sure and make as much as we can, because we cannot guarantee that, but uh, make take measures as mediators to make sure that their decisions are informed.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so to the extent that a lack of human dignity is at the cause of whatever the dispute is in mediation, how can a mediator make a party comfortable to talk about that lack of human dignity that they experienced?
0: So when you know that dignity is most of the time below or at the core of many of these conflicts, you can guide your questions, you know, towards finding out if one of these elements is the one that is really bothering people. And the likelihood is that there is one of these elements. So my experience is that people want to talk about this. And of course, they want to talk about this because this is this is a vital concern. This is a core concern of of, of all of us. They want to talk about how how they felt unsafe in a certain situation, or or not acknowledged, or uh, unfairly treated, and so on. So in that in that way, we can think of uh, you know of dignity as as I said as the north star. Of our work, and I use it all the time. I use it in in mediations, and I also use in consultations as an ombuds. And you can see how the flow of the of the communication, uh, if you are asking the right questions, goes towards this. And it is easier for people to talk about their their problems when they have uh, the language to explain why they're so upset, why they feel so so much humiliation, why there's so much anger. So these emotions that people express, the humiliation, the anger, the fear, are all the results, the mechanisms that we have to protect our dignity, which is the same thing as protecting our survival. So we have to understand that these uh, emotions are a symptom that something has been triggered. And, and acting sometimes like archaeologists <laughs> to figure out what is behind, you know, what is behind this emotion? What, why do people feel humiliated? Why do people feel disrespected? And so on.
1: And in, in your experience, do people, do they feel more comfortable talking about it in joint session with that other party present or in caucus? What's been your experience?
0: I would say that Both. You know, I I used uh, caucus when I was a mediator, but I was not a big fan of it. I use it I use it in some of the cases uh, that were more transactional. When you needed to uh, to give people maybe uh, a reality check or things like that, and you needed to talk more deeply about something that they were worried, uh, you could use those uh, caucus as well to help people verbalize and organize their thoughts about. Language that includes human dignity and so on, but um i I used to have when when the issue was relational between two people, I wanted to keep the the parties as much as possible jointly in the room and just use the questions uh in a way that will uh highlight you know the the individual dignity elements that may have been violated
1: makes sense makes sense. Well, Camila, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I mean, this is just this is information which is just so critically important. And I'm so happy that you were able to come on the show and share this with me.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure. It will be my pleasure. I'm very happy to talk with you. And I will be happy to talk with anyone who wants to discuss this subject. I, as I said, I'm mostly a practitioner and I have been taking this, even though I teach. Uh, I've been taking these concepts and applying to reality. So I have some experiences like using uh, the measurement of psychological safety uh, in a team and then intervening in a a team facilitation, then waiting for six months and remeasuring psychological safety, which means remeasuring the dignity in that team. And I have found that on average in the last two years, I have done this with 19 teams. And I have found that over uh, after six months, there is a, about a five percent increase in the level of psychological safety. So the fact that we have now tools, thanks to the work of uh, researchers like Donna Hicks, and also in the in, in case uh, of uh, psychological safety, Amy Edmondson and her colleagues, uh, this is I think at uh, the advancing or pushing forward our practice as dispute resolution professionals, and we should be taking these concepts creatively and applying it. In the, in the workplace, the concept of organizational rankism, for instance, is something that I am in the last six months I have been developing in my mind as uh, something that is there that we can see it, but it doesn't have a name. You know, it hasn't had a name the the deaf ear syndrome, that's the one that you hear the most. But we really need to connect it with concepts that are more uh, into the research of this in, in this field of this bureau solution.
1: And I'm glad you, you mentioned this whole idea of, um, you know, pulling from other fields. Cause that's one thing that, you know, during my time in the mediation field, I mean, I've really come to appreciate that it is this interdisciplinary field, that the more that we can understand these other fields that are related, the better mediators that we can be. Um, so, yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And, you know, to the extent that a listener wants to connect with you. Um, to learn more about your work, continue the conversation, how can they do so?
0: Oh, well, they can just email me. <laughs> it's probably the easier way. Um, my email is camilo.ascarate at iso.org or at my email at Columbia University, which is the same, camilo.ascarate at columbia.edu. So those are the easiest ways uh, to contact me. Uh, I will be happy to answer questions for talk with anyone on this, because I do believe that we all have a responsibility to present this uh, work to other people. We are all together advancing, I believe, uh, forward these issues in the workplace in particular. And I think that over time, we're going to make a workplace more dignified place. Uh, This is probably the last frontier of dignity. And uh, it's always very surprising how much dignity violations are accepted As a matter of fact, in in organizations, and it doesn't need to be so, you know, I I see it as unnecessary suffering.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, And, you know, it seems like mediators, ombuds, conflict resolution practitioners in general can really be at the forefront of this this positive change. Agreed. Well, Camila, thanks again for coming on the Mediate.com podcast. Like I said, this has been a really fascinating episode. Um, I'll go ahead and and put your email contact information in the show notes so that anyone who wants to reach out to you can. And thanks again for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for the invitation, Veronica. And thanks to Mediate.com for the invitation. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right, friends. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the podcast. We'll talk to you next time.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.